Malachi is not a book that people go to very often, probably because of its cheery content. It's one of those things that that most of us know that is situated right before we get to the New Testament. It's right before we get to the Gospels. But Malachi is incredibly helpful to us in kind of where we are in looking towards our capital campaign, looking towards our response to God financially. How are we going to contribute? How are we going to be a part of this process? But I want you to understand something. This is so incredibly important. If you and your family have decided to give X number of dollars to this campaign because you think God is going to be happier, that he's going to love you more, or that he's going to excuse some sin, you're doing it out of kind of guilt, obligation, don't give. Don't write a check. Don't come up, don't volunteer. Don't do any of those things because you're fundamentally misunderstanding who God is. You're fundamentally misunderstanding who God is. What we find in the book of Malachi is a people who in some sense were religiously perfect. Offerings, they're there, they're doing things. If you were to look kind of the outside of their life, not looking interiorly to what their heart looks like, you'd say, it's pretty good. This is like, like First Baptist in a big town good. Right? Everybody's got coat and tie, everybody's driving a Lexus, everybody looks good, this is good stuff. You get to know them, you begin to hear their stories, you would find that their hearts weren't close to God in any way, shape, or form. They're just going through the motions. This is why the book of Malachi is so perfect for us right here, right now. It's because in the book of Malachi, what we see is the understanding that because God loves us, not so that, not so that maybe he will, but because God loves us, we can give him our best, we can give him our all. Because God loves you, you can give him your best, and you can give him your all. Look here how Malachi opens up. The prophet writes and says, I have loved you, says the Lord. This is God speaking through the prophet Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Love is one of these things we kind of throw around. We are quick to assign the designation of love. I love Texas A&M football. I hate Alabama football. I mean, I love my wife. I love my kids. But at the same time, I will say, I love this restaurant, that restaurant, and, and if, you're, if you're dating, if you're in this dating relationship, maybe you don't want her to break up with you, him to break up with you, and so you notice that she, he's on the way out, and she say, you, you do this mental calculus, am I ready to say the four-letter word? Am I ready to say this word yet? And you say, I love you, and you think, oh, that was a mistake. I really wish they'd just go. I really wish they would just go. And so effectively, what we see here is that God has this testimony of love towards Israel, and what is their response? We don't see it. We don't recognize it. God comes to them, and effectively, he looks them square in the eye, and he says, I have loved you, creator of the universe, all-powerful, omnipotent. If he didn't exist, they wouldn't exist. He is the one who spun everything into existence. He looks at them, recognizes their waywardness, and he says this to them, to their hearts. I have loved you. 
And what he's communicating to them isn't this passing, fleeting understanding of love. He's not saying to them, when you're doing everything right, I love you. When you're doing everything right, you're not a nuisance to me. Everybody looks at you and they see me. I love you in so much as you're perfect. It's not what he's saying. The way that this is put together in the Hebrew, he's telling them, I loved you in the past. I love you in the present. I love you on into the future. God's love rests on them. And what you're going to find in this is it's a good thing and has zero to do with their behavior. And what we see from their response is their hearts are so incredibly far from God. God says to them, I have loved you. And their response is, how have you loved us? You see, they looked around and said, we are a people taken into exile. We are a people who are now worshiping in this rebuilt sanctuary. It's nothing, nothing compared to what Solomon had. We're a people who look at our lives and we say, this isn't the blessing that we should receive from God. This isn't the thing that, this, it just, our life shouldn't be like this. Say you love us? So they look at all the stuff in their lives. They look at all the events and things that are happening and changing. And they're basing their understanding of God on their experience. They're basing their understanding of God not on his testimony to them of his unfailing love, but upon their perception of blessing. Cannot do that. You see, God tells them that he's loved them, and their response is, how have you loved us? And God gives them this illustration, not of their greatness, but of his sovereign blessing resting on them. And so he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. God comes to them, and he makes no bones about it. He says, sovereignly, I moved to choose you, just as God chose Abram in Genesis 12. And what did he do? He said, I send you out so that you would be a blessing to those around you. I bless you, so you bless them. So too, in the line, God comes down, and his blessing rests upon Jacob. But Jacob's brother Esau found no such blessing. And so he speaks in terms of love and hate. And maybe you read this and you say, Oy vey, that's kind of rough. What's going on here? Well, what we find is in Genesis 29, Jacob has very much the same conversation. See, Jacob was married to Leah. He's married to Rachel. And who did he love? He loved Rachel. And the text tells us there in Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31, that Leah felt unloved. By Jacob. The text actually tells us that he loved Rachel more. So you get into verse 31 and it says, Leah was hated. See, it's not a description of animosity, of pouring out venom and indismeanness. It's this description of, of this preferential love of one more than the other. The same thing Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10, 37. He says, anyone who looks at his life or his children and loves them more than me is unworthy of this guy looks at Jacob, and, and he's looking effectively at this disobedient child who's in the middle of a temper tantrum. And still in the middle of this temper tantrum, God has this amazing love profession on them. Do you ever feel loved in the midst of rebellion, in the midst of wandering away? See, I can, I can think back to times in my life where I've wandered away, I have been engaged in, in some sin or some inner heart rebellion or another. 
really don't want to be anywhere near God. Because there was this inner removal in my heart of God's love coming to me. I felt dirty, I felt unclean, I didn't feel worthy to come to church, I didn't feel worthy to have conversations with other Christians. But the last thing I wanted to do was to go to some Christian and be like, hey, guess what, this is my problem, can you help me fix it? Christians say, Matt, how are you? Oh man, I'm fine, glory be, glory be, praise and honor. I don't talk like that normally, but in the midst of sin, it's like all out Christian vocabulary. It's like DC talk in the 90s Christian vocabulary. But what we see is even in the midst of our tendency towards waywardness, God's love, his disposition to us is unchanging. We see this amazing picture of God's love for us and how radical it is in Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Paul writes and says, And you, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Anybody read that and say, this is the future in-law I want. This is the future son-in-law I want for my daughter. This is the person I want marrying into my family. This is who I want as a bride. This is who I want as a husband. This is who I want as a child. If you have a three-year-old, you recognize they're already there. But look what he says. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. God has reconciled you to himself. He took on sin and death for you to bring you to him who were alienated, who were hostile, who were engaged in evil things. God has redeemed you. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach to him, God's love has been poured out for you to affect everything about who you are. So God could come to you right now and say, Ben, I have loved you. James, I have loved you. Clint, I have loved you. Daniel, I have loved you. Peter, I have loved you. So God finds us all in the midst of our waywardness. He finds all of us in the midst of our apathy. He finds all of us in the midst of this moment where we begin to doubt his love. And speaking into our doubt, pouring in and speaking into our misfortune, he says, I have loved you, even at the point when you doubt me, even at the point when you're tempted to walk away. I have loved you in your rebellion, and my love is perfect and unassailable because his love for you is founded in the sacrifice of Jesus. He looks to you, he looks to me, and he says, I have loved you. 1 John 4 says, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was displayed. It was shown among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Listen to this. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Our love from God is not initiated on us taking this move towards him, but it's him taking a move towards us who are formerly alienated and hostile in our minds and engaged in evil things. This is good news. God loves you with this radicalized love. loved us he sent his son look at this to be the propitiation for our sins god sent jesus simply put to be an atoning sacrifice for you 
He sent Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice for you. We find ourselves just like the Israelites receiving this letter from Malachi. God looks to us, and, 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 and we all know. This week, if you were to be honest, your pursuit of God, probably not a 10 out of 10. Somebody asks you, they put you on the spot, what are you going to say? Seven. Because that seems to be average, right? That seems to be a good average number. How are you doing in your pursuit for God this week, Charles? How are you doing in your pursuit against God this week, Mickle? And you say, seven. And then some idiot says, ten. And you're like, I knew I should have gone with eight. Now I'm just the average student in the middle of the class, and, and unless we have a bell curve, there's no way I get this done. But when we're honest before God in our, in our prayer on our knees at night when we lay our head on the pillow, if we're honest before God, the fact that his love comes towards us in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our apathy, in the midst of us just not trying very hard. It's so gracious and reassuring. It's so gracious and reassuring. You see, God's love, it's because of God's love that they're meant to offer their best and their all. It's because of God's love that we're called to offer our best and our all. But I suppose it's because of the relationships that we're in that when we try harder, our spouse loves us more. When we work harder, we get promotions at work. When our kids obey more, they get less spankings and punishments and they get more treats and prizes and fun family days and all these things. That everything around us is teaching us that our behavior should be modified and that when our behavior is better, we receive more. And so, too, we go into this understanding with God that if we do more, if we try harder, then God is more readily pleased with us and he'll do more for us. But God loves you the most he ever will. He is most satisfied, perfectly satisfied with you in the person of Jesus. We've got to believe it. We've got to understand it. Because God loves you, we can give him our best. Look down at 1, 6 through 12 in the book of Malachi. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm father, where is my honor? If I'm master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? We find that they're in the midst of this relationship with God and he should be to them a master, he should be to them a father, and they're treating him as neither. They're treating him as neither. Their response to God indicated that they knew him not. Their response to God indicated that they saw him as this heavenly giver of gifts, but not as a father, not as a master. I says, where is my honor he says, O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? So God turns to those established to offer, uh, to, to, to extend offerings, to extend the gifts of the people, to represent the people before him. He turns to them and he says, you have despised my name. You've despised my name. And what we see in their response is this radical indication of how far their hearts were from him. They didn't even recognize the rote manner of their gifts and offerings. They didn't recognize the emptiness of those things that they were giving to God. They didn't recognize how far their hearts have wandered from them. And so maybe you read this and you say, whew, man, I can take a break because right here he said, has priests, and, and I'm not a priest, I'm not a priestess. Well, I've got bad news for you. I've got bad news for you today. In the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, he writes, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal Priesthood. Everybody say, I'm a member of the priesthood. Toyeshkoda, it's a Czech expression. It means it's a shame or it's a pity. We recognize that we are all on the hook for this. 
We're all on the hook for this. Our wayward heart, the way that we come to God, and, and, and we say, ah, I just don't want to be a part of it. It's the same thing they were evidencing, the same thing they were showing. He goes on and he says, by saying the Lord's table may be despised, this is how you show dishonor to me. Verse 8 says, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? They were offering the easy. They were offering those things that did not cost them anything. They were offering those things that, that, that affected no real change in their lifestyle. And God categorically calls it evil. Because when we look at their sacrifice, what we recognize is that they did what many of us do. Once or twice a year, some of you should do it more, but many of you engage in kind of looking through your house and you're, you're, touring, you're tearing through closets, you're finding stuff, and, 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 and you take all that stuff and you put it in a big pile, and likely that pile sits on a really floral-colored couch, right? And so you take all this stuff and you put it on the couch, and what do you do? You say, who can I give all this stuff to? I know. I'm going to give it to the church. Because one of the things I know is that you can never have, or I'm sorry, they can never have too many floral colored couches in the youth room. <laughs> I don't want it in my class. I don't want to see it again. It was my grandmother since she was a terrible woman. But it's a blessing before God. Couch, may you be blessed. May you bring the cedar comfort. And this is kind of your prayer. And so you gather all this stuff up in one of those really luxurious black hefty bags. And, and you call the church and you say, could you come get this delightfully, slightly worn, 70-year-old couch? <laughs> Maybe you look through and you, you, you find other things. You look through your garage and, and, and you're looking through your toolbox and you say, oh, look, here's a wrench that's mostly working. Here's a, here's a, a Phillips that, that kind of works as an ice pick. Oh, look, here's a flathead that's, that's really just kind of an angle prize bar now. And so I bet Jay would love that. <laughs> you know, I, I found his tools all over this church. I bet he needs a, a, a Phillips flathead angle crew bar, you know, whatever thing. You could gouge somebody in the eye. Somebody breaks into the church, he's going to need that. That's what most of us, if we're honest, this is kind of what we look for. We look for the things that are easy, the things that don't cost us very much, and we give them with great gladness. We had some friends that were, were serving with the International Mission Board a number of years ago. They were in Romania. And uh, this, this family in the U.S. contacted them and said, we want to send you a gift. We want to care for. We want to love your family. And so this family packaged this, this stuff up, and they sent it, and and I can tell you if, you, if you send something the wrong way to somebody living overseas, it could take weeks to get to them, okay? And so many weeks it had gone by, and this is before the days where long-distance calls weren't just astronomically expensive, and, and before the days of email and text message and all this good stuff, and they weren't posting anybody's Facebook page, they're not taking them Instagram or their picture and saying, guess what, here it comes. And so this family finally gets this package, and I can tell you that if you send anything to a missionary serving overseas, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to get snail mail. It's, it's an even bigger deal to get a package. And so they gather the family around, and they're looking at this package, and you can see smiles on moms and dads' faces, and you can see anticipation welling in the kids. Is it American candy? Is it American candy? Is it American candy? So they tear into it, and they're opening this, and they open up, and what they find in this are used tea bags. 
You see, this family recognized that you can brew tea at least a couple of times through a good tea bag. And they recognized that, they, that this missionary family didn't have anything. They didn't have anything. And God had so richly blessed this family in the U.S. that they wanted to be a blessing to this family, so they took their once used tea bags and they packaged them and they put them in a Ziploc bag and they put them in a box and they paid hard-earned money to ship them all the way to Romania. So this family opened this box and what they found was they had received a gift that did not cost the family anything. If your gifts to God don't cost you anything, if it doesn't alter anything, if it's not calling on you to sacrifice something, then what you're giving him is so great of an indication of what you think of him. Our gifts should cost us something. Because God loves us, we give him our best. God turns to these Israelites and he says, he turns on them and he says, what if you were to present that to your governor? Will he accept you or show you any favor, says the Lord of hosts? In essence, what if you took the lame or the sick and you walked into the governor and you said, here, this is for you. I hope you're happy with it. If our same response towards God, if, if, if our same response towards God and our giving him our best was visited upon the IRS, how would they feel towards us? I can tell you, they would not be very happy. They would not be very happy. You go into the IRS agents, you go in, you send them a letter, and you say, hey, look, so this is a deal. I dug through my kids' drawers. I stole all their change. I sold all their favorite toys. And here you go. They're sacrificing for you. Are you satisfied? This is effectively the argument that he makes for them. If our sacrifices do not personally cost us anything, then we're not really serving God. We're giving out a sense of obligation or guilt. Giving out of a sense of obligation or guilt. Look what he does here. God gives us this beautiful picture of how to metric our giving to him. Verse 11, verse 11, he says, From the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 14, he says, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. You see, their gifts betrayed their misunderstanding of who God is. But when we truly understand how good and amazing he is, it changes our heart's desire to give to him. Because we are loved by him, because we recognize his greatness, our gifts towards him are changed. We move from giving the easy, the low-hanging fruit of life, to giving our best. Ken Money told me a story about his father a number of uh, years ago that has stuck with me. His father was a justice of the peace, and he often uh, got stuck doing weddings. You know, his weddings don't take nearly as long as the ones I'm a part of, and that's because you have everybody kind of gathered around. But nevertheless, he got, got asked to do a number of weddings, and, and uh, invariably at some point the groom would turn to him and, and say, Mickey, how much do I owe you for this? Ken said, and you have to understand this part. He's very clear on this. Always in the presence of the bride always in the presence of the bride. 
he would say to the groom, pay according to the beauty of your bride. And so you know she's thinking, whoo! What does he think? What does he think? And he's thinking, what does she think she's worth? So he says it to this one guy. The guy reaches out and gives him a $5 bill. Now, this is a long time ago. Gives him a $5 bill. Ken said his dad looked at the $5 bill, he walked over, and he lifted the veil, and then he made change out of his pocket to the guy. <laughs> you see, many of us, our giving to God is an indication that we don't think he's beautiful. Many of us, our indication and in our giving to God is no more of an indication of anything other than we just give out of a sense of guilt or compulsion. Our gift to God is on the basis of his great love for us and a recognition of the greatness of his name. And he is asking us to sacrifice from this place of surely having received his blessing and of surely having received his love. The Bible gives us a beautiful picture of this in, in Genesis 4. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel come before God and they're going to offer their, their gifts before God. And halfway through verse 2, it says, Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the first fruit of his flock and the fat of their portions. Now this is important. Look what happens. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. This is what God does when you bring an offering to him. He looks at you. He looks at your heart. And then he looks at what you bring. So Abel came in. He brought the first of his flock. He brought the first of the fat portions. He had regard for Abel. He looked at Abel's heart. He looked at the motivation to give. He looked at his interior response. And it says God had regard for Abel. Then he looked at his gift and it said God had regard for Abel's offering. So God turns to Cain. It says, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Abel gave something that cost him something. He made a sacrifice to bring an offering to God. God looked at his heart, he looked at what he brought, and he had regard for him. He turns to Cain. This is what he sees. He's somebody whose heart wasn't in it. It cost him little. He looked at what he brought. And it could be great, it could be amazing, but it didn't matter. If God does not have regard for you, the giver, then he will not have regard for your gift. We need to be a people who give because God has transformed our hearts to give to him. And we give from a place of already having received his love, already having received it, not a desire to please him with our gifts, but because we are well pleased with him, we regard him as high and worthy of all praise, so too we praise him, we honor him in giving him our best. Amen? Everybody say, we will give him our best. 
We will give him our best. We will give him our all. In Malachi 3, 6 through 12, we see a picture of a people who, who are not engaged in this. Even though they were maybe religiously perfect from the outside, their hearts were far from him. Look at what God says. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is good news for us. Because God's character is unchanging, because his ways are unchanging, his movement towards us is not altered. He is pleased by you in the person of Jesus. God is most pleased in you because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's the power of his Holy Spirit which keeps God's pleasure resting upon you. So God says to them, you're not obliterated, you're not consumed because I don't change. Verse 7, it says, from the days of your fathers you have not you have turned aside from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Look at this. But you say, how shall we return? They didn't recognize this void. They didn't recognize the coolness. They didn't recognize the absence of this intimate relationship with God. They didn't recognize that they had gone anywhere. But God illustrates it in terms of their giving of their tithes to him. He says, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? Do you see the obstinacy there? Do you see the refusal to believe this? This is like arguing with my three-year-old. Graham comes out of his room the other day, and he says, uh, he says oh, it rained. He's angry that it's raining. Valerie graciously says to him, Graham, it didn't rain. They're looking at the same ground outside, y'all. You know what his response is? Yes, it did! <laughs> it's ridiculous. What do you do with that? I have no idea. No, really. Like, if you know, come talk to me. This is the same argument they're getting into. He says, look, if you, if you quit robbing me, you can return. And they will, man, rob God. Yet you're robbing me. And they say, how have we robbed you? They're looking at the same evidence in their hearts before God, and their question is, really? How have we done this? Huh? God gets clear. He says, it's in your tithes and your contributions. Verse 10, he offers a corrective. He says, bring your full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and therefore put me to test, says the Lord of hosts. When you begin to look at us as a people, Many of you have heard the statistic that says that 20% of the people give 80% of the money. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And I just want to boil it down and kind of give us some, some Ridgecrest metric, some Ridgecrest statistics so we can understand and we can begin to apply this to ourselves, okay? So you're going to hear me spout numbers. I wrote them down, and so I'm not just going to be, oh, five, six, seven. We have 262 giving units. Over last year, a giving unit is a family, and so the monies, and you got to get real specific in that. But the Rileys, that's, that's one giving unit. The Salmons, that's one giving unit. The Beasleys, that's one giving unit. So we have 262 of those across our body. And when you begin to break it down and, and, and kind of get to understand this, 20% of our people, 20% of our people make up about 75% of our giving. 20% of our people make up about 75% of our giving. Well, what that means is 
80% of our people, 80% of our people only have 25% of our budget to make up. Now, some of you, in your life situation, you're retired, retired, some of you are unemployed. I want you to hear me in this. I'm not coming to you and saying you need to give more. It's not what I'm doing. If you're strapped financially and you're really struggling and you feel super guilty about what I'm about to say, understand that's not my intention. I'd never want to put that pressure on you. I'd never want to put that pressure on you. But when you look at it, 83 family units, 83, gave less than $300 last year. giving 75%. And about 30% giving $300 or less for the year. Now it's possible that some in that group are sacrificing. And this is what it looks like for God to have good regard for you and good regard for your gift. The difficulty becomes when you look at the median income for Hunt County from 2010, median household income is $44,000. So if we're looking at a tithe, which is 10% of your income, admittedly, I did not study any form of math in college, right? Like, if you need help with your taxes, you need to go see somebody else. You need help with simple arithmetic, I got a calculator, I can help you. But admittedly, 300 is 10% of 3,000. <laughs> Some of you didn't think I was going to get there. And so what we look at is that there's a decent chance that some of those 83 are robbing God. Man, that breaks my heart. This is not an appeal to get you to give more money. If that's what you hear, then you've misheard. You give to God because you recognize he loves you, because you recognize how great he is, and you know he owns everything. A tithing conversation, a giving conversation for a Christian does not look at it and say, what's my adjusted gross income and 10% of that? It doesn't look at 10% of net, 10% of gross. A Christian having a a conversation with God about how much to give to a church, this is what it looks like. It's all yours. How much do you want right now? And that's terrifying. Because where our money goes is typically an indication of where our hearts already are. Our hearts are in our jobs. Our hearts are in our vacations. Our hearts are in our hobbies. Our hearts are in our homes. Typically. What we need to be is a people who on the basis of recognizing God's great love for us, 
We give him our best, not the leftovers, not the easy toss away. And we give him our all, recognizing it's all already his in the first place. There's this massive reappropriation of giving in our hearts before God. My prayer, my prayer all along, in this capital campaign from the day we said that we want to build, we want to renew, that we want to remodel, my prayer, just like Callie said earlier, is that we would not take our focus off of God. God, if you are not leading us up from this place, don't let us go. My prayer in our finances. Some of you recognize that you are culpable, you are guilty, you are robbing God. It's not corrected by giving more. It's corrected by giving your heart to him and allowing him to transform your outlook on giving and serving and worshiping. Would you join me and would you pray for that, for yourself, for those around you? God, you are a great king and worthy of all praise. Your name will be worshipped in the nations. God, would you help us to worship you with our finances? Would you help us to worship you with our time? God, help us to be a people who display how beautiful we see you as in the giving of our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings. Help us to do well in supporting the ministries of this church, and the expansions that we feel that you have led us to. Help us always to be sensitive to the leading and direction of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, this morning we pray for any who have yet to submit themselves to you. That they wouldn't turn away, they wouldn't harden their hearts, but they would respond to the sure and steadfast love that you extend to them in the person of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection in his open invitation to them to come, to come to receive forgiveness, to come to receive eternal life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.